Hi, and welcome back to Thoughts on Therapy. I'm Caleb Matthews. And I'm Lauren Spalding. And we wanted to talk about a therapy model today, specifically one that we both use called EMDR, or Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing. Yeah, so in today's episode, what we're going to do is just cover kind of a general overview of EMDR, uh, our own experiences, um, what sessions with a therapist actually might look like, and then go into some common misconceptions that we've heard about EMDR. So I guess to get us started, the general overview for EMDR is it's kind of an eight-phase process. Um, and so in those eight phases, you're going to have history taking, preparation, assessment, desensitization, installation, body scan, closure, and reassessment, um, which are all super fancy words um, that we might take yeah. a second to uh, explain what might get done in each of those. Um, but history taking is kind of the first one, and that's, I guess, where we'll start. Um, so how history taking uh, looks in a session is gonna be probably just doing some assessments and kind of getting some general information um, from people. Oh, it looks like a typical intake session. It's just that the questions might be asked a little bit differently. So your therapist might ask you to float back, which is a way of like connecting with your experience and, and allowing your brain to bring up other memories that feel similar. But it's essentially your therapist is just trying to get a general idea of what are the major events in your life that you feel like are impacting your current mental health. Yeah, and they're going to kind of do that usually for EMDR, at least. Um, most EMDR clinicians are going to use like a past, present, future template. Mm -hmm. um, not all of them, but like what you're really looking for is like past events, especially if there's like a specific trauma that you're wanting to address um, that might be traumatic for you. So past events, uh, current triggers, so things that trigger you in the present, and then any future needs that you might have. So like, let's say you're worried about a job interview that's coming up because of your past trauma, um, mm -hmm. you might start to get that future template in this history taking phase. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it's a lot of times uh, people want to use EMDR or therapists put that in a treatment plan for trauma. So when we say triggers, we mean the true definition of triggers, not just kind of this pop psychology layman's way we use triggers now where we say like, oh, my anger was triggered. Um, yeah. When we do EMDR assessments, we are asking for triggers in a sense of there's a stressor that is so distressing, it makes you feel like you're back in that trauma, um, or it's just so dysregulating that you feel like you can't even drive down that side of town, or you can't even walk into a place that reminds you of the trauma memory. Yeah, I'm thinking of uh, trying to think of like maybe a movie that might show a trigger well and the one that's coming to mind for me is um oh man uh silver linings playbook mm, um yeah. which this trigger is definitely being um like triggers aren't always like what happens in the movie because in the movie the therapist um purposefully triggers the client by playing a song 
that he knows is going to be a trigger for the client, um, which is also not good therapy. Not good therapy. <laughs> uh, but uh, that song would be an example of a trigger because it's like, I think their wedding song um, and it reminds him of how his wife cheated on him. Um, yeah, and it's not to this place of like, oh, I hate hearing that song. It reminds me of a bad memory. It's where he's like physically distressed and has to leave the room and yeah. like physically feels it in his body as if he's um, seeing her cheating all over again. Yeah, exactly. Like it pulls him completely back into reliving his traumatic experience, which is what a trigger does. Yeah. Um, so uh, sidebar, that movie is really good. So highly recommend if you haven't seen Silver Linings Playbook. <laughs> Didn't it come out like a decade ago? <laughs> it did, but it, uh, I think it was nominated for like Best Picture. Jennifer uh, Lawrence heyday. Yeah, that was so good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and history taking can look different depending on an EMDR therapist's approach. So um some for some EMDR therapists, they are literally like, I want a timeline from the beginning of your life to now. And it's very formal. And for yeah. other EMDR therapists, it might be I'm I only want events that are associated with your current issue. And then other therapists are like, I just want an idea of your life so that I have an idea of what's going to come up in the trauma therapy, but they're expecting details to come out later on. So it really varies, um, which means it can take one session. It can take five sessions. Like it just really depends on the complexity of your trauma, the complexity of your goals and your therapist's uh, extended training in EMDR. Yeah, so uh, the next stage of EMDR is going to be the preparation stage, um, which is probably one of my favorite stages of EMDR. Um, really? I really like the preparation stage. Um, I feel like this is where you really get to build up resources with a client. Mm -hmm. And so that's going to be... Um, like safe place or nurturing wise kind figure, which are resources that a client can start to use out in their daily life. And so you might picture a place that you really love um, that means a lot to you. Um, and this can be like a real or imagined place, but then the client can start to use going to that place and like feeling how they feel whenever they're in that place um, mm -hmm. and practicing that. Um, so I think I really like this stage because it gives people like actual tools that you can go out and use. And I mean, if people are practicing these preparation tools, it can really make start to make a big difference and give you confidence that the therapy is going to help, um, right. which I think is sometimes really useful um, to do early on. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I definitely can see that. Um, I think I'm stuck on the preparation phase of like, you're going through the different types of bilateral stimulation, which we'll talk about later. And <laughs> you're going through like, um, kind of the, per the person's like specific needs and stuff. And there are times in sessions, I feel like an eye doctor I'm like, yeah. this one or this one, which one's better, this one or this one? And it can sometimes kind of take me out of like the relational part of therapy that I love. 
So I feel like I'm still navigating like that part of preparation. But yeah, yeah, I agree with you that like the resourcing is really enjoyable and, and the kind of openness to like introducing other needs for the client so that they can start building safety around exploring trauma. I think that's fun. There's just so many different things you can do to help a client resource. I feel like everyone's different. Everyone responds to different techniques um, or different resources differently. And that's really fun, but I don't like feeling like an eye doctor. (laughs) Yeah, that's fair. I feel like the preparation stage, I also credit though. So like not only getting a person ready with maybe knowing more information about EMDR and like all of this eye doctor stuff that Lauren's talking about. But I also think this is where you finally start to get to like build rapport with clients. So I mean, in that history taking phase, you're just kind of like getting information. But in preparation, I feel like you're actually getting to like talk with them and like build that relationship um, too. And that's really meaningful to me as well. Yeah. Yeah. And preparation can take again, like a short amount of time or an extended time. I, I work with complex traumas. Caleb does as well, but we, I notice I have some people who we are in that preparation phase for like a year before we even start introducing desensitization because there are so few resources or they are so dysregulated in their current day-to-day that, um, we're having to really, really build up resources and, but it doesn't feel like you're stuck. Like the clients still feel forward momentum. Um, But as therapists, we know like, okay, we're still in that phase and we're going to need to work to get to the next one. And, and that's okay. Um, But I think sometimes because EMDR is such a popular model now and people are hearing about it a lot more sometimes people think like they're not really doing EMDR until they get to the eye movements yeah which is yeah I think uh, one of those common misconceptions that I guess we're gonna talk a little bit about later Mm -hmm. um, is that EMDR is so much more than just the eye movements Um, Yeah. yeah yeah So next up, we got assessment. Um, And these next phases actually all start to kind of get really a lot quicker. Those first two can, as Lauren said, like sometimes take a little bit longer depending on uh, the client and depending on what you're working on. Like if you're talking about an attachment trauma, that's going to maybe take a little bit more history taking and preparation than a car accident that happened once. in your lifetime. So like if, mm-hmm. if, if it's just a one-time big T trauma, um, then you're going to be able to maybe process through that quicker. And that's a big maybe. So like sometimes people are able to process through things pretty quickly and sometimes it takes a little bit longer. Yeah. Um, but in this assessment phase, um, that's going to be where you do, uh, you might hear your therapist say like the words target set up. So um, that's going to be where you're talking about a specific traumatic event and they're going to have you try to name what that trauma is and kind of take you through 
all of the different ways that you feel about it. Like, what do you feel in your body? What are you, what image comes up for you? What did it make you believe about yourself? What do you want to believe about yourself going forward? So you're going to talk about kind of a few different things in, in this phase, specifically related to your trauma, which is why, because this one might be harder, that's why preparation comes first, because you need to be able to have a resource available in case this part goes poorly. Yeah, absolutely. And then the next phase, desensitization. Yeah. So that's where the eye movements come in or tactile, which is um, called tapping or using tappers, which are, is this little machine that vibrates in your hand and uh, that you also could use auditory where you have a certain tone that goes in your right ear, then your left, then your right, then your left. And there's different ways to ex- also experience eye movements. Some therapists hold a stick or like a wand and you follow the tip of it. Some therapists have a light bar. Uh, some therapists, when we're doing telehealth, use an app where you follow a ball across the screen. And some therapists are old school and just use their hand where they move their hand right and left and they have two fingers up and you're following the tips of their fingers. Yeah. And all of those different techniques that Lauren just described are what's called bilateral stimulation. Mm -hmm. Um, So bilateral by both lateral sides. So like bilateral stimulation is you're stimulating both sides of your brain. And so whenever you see someone's hand move from one side of your face to the other side, your eyes cross the middle part of your face. And so they cross from one side to the other. And that causes all of your neurons to fire across your brain. And so why bilateral stimulation can be helpful is, let's say you've got this trauma memory that's stuck inside your head. If it's sitting there stuck, whenever we go back and activate the trauma memory by having you talk about it in this assessment phase, and then we do the bilateral stimulation, it allows your brain to go back there to that trauma memory and process it again. So rather than just think about it, you're going back and actually seeing it as if you're experiencing it again, so that way your brain can go back and process it. And one of the ways that um, science thinks that this might imitate is, for example, if you know about different sleep cycles, there's one of your sleep cycles that's called your rapid eye movement or REM type of sleep. Mm -hmm. And whenever you're in this REM sleep, your eyes shift back and forth. And that's what's happening in your brain whenever you're in REM sleep is your brain is processing what happened to you earlier that day. Um, And so EMDR, they think might be doing kind of what REM sleep is doing for you, but it's allowing you to target like, let's go back and process this trauma memory because it got stored in a stuck way 
um, and we need to reprocess it. So that's why EMDR, that R stands for reprocessing. You're reprocessing a memory. Yes, and the desensitizing means desensitizing how intense it feels to you. And that's the right and left brain activated at the same time they think is what causes the desensitization. Um, there's a lot of different theories about it and it feels like it's changing constantly as they do more and more research around EMDR. Like the REM sleep is one. I've also heard um, it might be a way of mimicking how we were naturally soothed growing up. Like babies, we rock them right to left when they're um, distressed and people sometimes even rock themselves right to left or um, like fiddle with ourselves, like uh, uh, tapping right and left and we don't even realize we're doing it. And I've also heard that some people are find, have a theory that it's more about you're asking the brain to do two things at once. So you're asking the brain to think of the memory and then you're asking it to follow this activity. And it's the dual attention that is leading to the healing. Uh, so it's very interesting to hear like these different ideas around it, but there is a clear connection to how the brain wants to process things. EMDR can allow that in a physical way when someone can't do it like just with talk therapy. Yeah, yeah. I, I think one of the best metaphors that I've heard for it is um, it has to do with Play-Doh. So whenever you take Play-Doh outside of a tube it might look a certain way whenever you first take it out and that's like your trauma memory but then what we're doing in EMDR is kind of like touching it and folding it and moving it around in our hands and then whenever you stick it back into the tube it's now taken on a different shape so anytime that we go to activate a memory that is a trauma memory, we are moving it and shifting it around. So you might experience the memory a little bit differently just because we're taking it out and kind of messing with it. We're yeah. kind of playing with that Play-Doh and then putting it back away. And it's not gonna look the exact same as it did whenever you first take it out as it does whenever you put it back in. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a really amazing study uh, or thing that we've discovered through brain science is that the brain is not uh, concrete, that it's it's plastic and it can always change and evolve even when we don't think it can. Yeah. And this desensitization phase, so what's happening in that was that we're using these eye movements, we're using this, these tappers, these things that vibrate in your hands, we're using touch, we're using auditory messages, any type of bilateral stimulation, stimulating on both sides of your body um, to desensitize the memory. And then we start to install new memories. So this isn't giving you new memories per se, it's more like giving you a new perspective that you hold with this memory. Um, so you hold on to maybe a different belief that you want to hold while looking at this memory network. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's what gets installed is maybe you 
used to believe that um, I don't deserve love, but now you're able to hold and say like, I do deserve love. Like I deserve to be cared for, or I can take care of myself. Um, mm -hmm. So you might hold this new installed belief when looking at this traumatic experience. Yeah. Or a big one is believing that you're safe now, even when a trigger comes up. Yeah, exactly. So the next phase um, in EMDR treatment will be body scan, uh, which is where a person kind of tunes into their body and sees if there's any disturbances that are showing up because one of the main things with EMDR and with trauma treatment that we're discovering is that trauma gets held in the body. So it's important to pay attention to any sensations that you might be having. Yeah, so more as more research is being done on memory, uh, a lot of trauma-informed researchers are finding that your body is the, the part of you that holds memory the longest, which is why it's the last phase in EMDR. Like you cognitively could feel like you're over it. You emotionally could feel like you're over it, but sometimes your body still has a reaction to the trauma. And that's why there's a whole element of scanning your body and really making sure any visceral response to the event is more at a neutral state or more at a manageable state. And kind of a couple uh, examples of this, just to maybe make it a little bit more tangible for you. Um, there's a really great video that I usually recommend clients to look at, which is uh, of this polar bear. Um, and it's actually something that they had uh, Lauren and I watch in grad school. Um, but it's this polar bear that suffers a trauma. And what you see it do afterwards is it just kind of like shakes off the traumatic event. And you'll see that in a few different animals, but that's kind of like what is thinking to happen is that the, what they think might be happening is that uh, they're shaking off that trauma. They're letting their body let it go, which is not something that we as humans instinctively do anymore. Um, and so that's why it's an important part of this traumatic healing process. Um, is giving your body time to respond. And sometimes people will talk about um, maybe emotion that they weren't able to complete, like especially if you were in a car accident, um, not being able to look to the right because the accident happened right then. And then during this trauma treatment, you are holding that memory in your mind and now you're able to do what you weren't able to do before. Um, and how that can be really impactful and the body is reprocessing that experience. Yeah. Yeah. Cause as humans, we rely more on our cognitive skills and our intellect to survive. And so we are not relying as much on our body and especially in today's culture uh, in America, we're not necessarily learning from a young age, how to tune into our bodies. And that's not you know, taught in schools and it's very new to parenting. And so a lot of people don't have that 
skill set of tapping into how your body is holding memory or how your body experienced something. And a lot of times we just go to what are we thinking? What are we feeling? And even what are we feeling? We don't always go to. And we can easily convince ourselves that what we're thinking is that we're over it and it's fine and it's not a big deal. Uh, and EMDR really helps to unpack that a little bit more and make sure that that's actually true and that mind, body, and spirit are all aligned with that healing goal. Yeah, which is why I think it's really important to check in with that at the very um, end here, because we've kind of processed through with those thoughts, and now we're giving the body one last chance to say like, hey, is there anything else that might be showing up for you um, before we head into the last couple phases, which are uh, closure and reassessment. Um, so mm -hmm. as we move into closure, um, that's, I mean, it's probably one of the shorter phases um, because it's just making sure that the client's okay and stable um, after having trauma treatment, because sometimes after an EMDR session, you might have like new ways of thinking about it because your brain just reprocessed some of what it's maybe held on to for potentially several years. And so it's playing catch up. Um, and during that catch up time, you want to make sure that um, you're okay, um, that you're able to use the techniques and the resources that your EMDR therapist should have introduced you to at the front end um, while your body's processing through the rest of how this affects your life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And closure, there is some type of closure element to every session if you haven't gone through all of the phases. And that looks different if you're having to pause in a target versus completely finishing out a target. Yeah, exactly. Because um, sometimes you might end a session and you're not at a stopping point, but you have to, you know, contain for now, which is containing is a whole other resource that we might get to in the future, but it's a way to kind of hold it off while you wait to come back to therapy or while you wait to go process it somewhere else. Um, but yeah, so having a way to close uh, is really important. But one of the things that I really value about EMDR is you would think closure would be the last the last phase, but um, they really open it back up with the last phase, which is reassessment. Um, so whenever EMDR is over, there might be things that happen in the future that trigger a past trauma. And so you might have to come back and look at the same thing again if something similar happens. Like for example, I've mentioned a car accident a few minutes ago. If you have another car accident, it might bring up some of that previous trauma, even though you've already processed it. Mm -hmm. And so coming back and reassessing um, is going to be useful. For sure. I always uh, kind of use the symbolism of like, it's like a doctor, like just because you went through healing your broken leg doesn't mean that nothing's ever going to happen to your body again. And doesn't mean that your body's not going to hurt if it happens again. And so um, you might come back because you have the flu. You might come back because you broke something else, you know, and there are different reasons why you might return to therapy. 
But it's very important to keep that in mind to remove this idea of perfectionism around healing. And even though it's not explicitly stated, I feel like a lot of people come into therapy thinking like, I'm going to come out of here being like so zen and I'm going to be able to have the best coping skills and always handle things well. And that's not actually true. That's not reality. But you're going to feel a lot more equipped to handle what comes up in the future. And you're going to feel a lot more attuned to your needs and how to communicate and what your body's feeling and all of these different things that weren't as developed before you started therapy. Yeah. And it's not going to, I really like um, that you're bringing this up, Lauren, because I think it's important to notice that even if something does happen again, that doesn't erase a lot of the work that you've already done. So like mm-hmm. you come back into the therapy room and you already know how, what resources to use. So you can dive right into maybe the trauma a little bit faster than you would have if this was your first time doing EMDR. So um, mm-hmm. you've already got a lot of the coping skills and especially if you continue to practice them because that's um, something that I want to get up on maybe a little soapbox for, uh, for just a second, which is if you practice the coping skills that you are talking about in the therapy room, they're going to work so much better. Um, I try to make sure that my clients know um, time after time that therapy doesn't happen only in the hour that you're in the therapy room. Um, It happens in all the spaces in between because if you're not um taking this back into your life you're not really going to get anywhere so you have to practice these coping skills practice these resources um outside of the therapy room so that you can move forward whenever you're in the therapy room for sure yeah So let's talk about our own experiences of EMDR. We have had very different experiences and I feel like that leads us to practice differently with this model. Yeah, so um, I guess uh, I'm happy to start off with my experience of EMDR. Um, I actually, I try not to do too many forms of therapy unless I've experienced them as a client. And so that's kind of what led me into EMDR was um, I went and did some EMDR processing myself and saw that it was helpful um, to kind of go through some of my own traumas. And once I saw that it was helpful, I applied for uh, actually a scholarship and got to be a part of this amazing program that uh, our community has where uh, we're able to help people who have experienced um, sexual assault um, and are able to provide therapy to them. So I I was able to use my EMDR skills there and I I loved getting to help out with that that project, um, which we might put a link um, in the chat if you're interested in EMDR therapy and you're in the Austin area how you can be a part of the project that I just described. Um, But I also had an amazing uh, trauma therapist, um, as well as an amazing EMDR trainer. Uh, And so that went really well for me. Uh, 
my trainer, uh, Rick Levinson is just incredible and such a great, such a great teacher and just wants this model and this therapy to um, continue to be out in the world. And it really shows in the way that he teaches. Um, and so I value that so, so much. Um, but I do know that that's not everybody's experience with EMDR training, which uh, I think Lauren's gonna tell us a little bit about her experience. <laughs> Yeah, I had the opposite experience. I still practice it. I'm actually now certified in EMDR and have the goal of becoming a certified consultant for people who aren't as bought into it or who want to integrate it with other models because there is a phenomenon of, in, in the EMDR community of um, a lot of trainers and consultants believing this is the elixir of life. We have found the fountain of healing. There is no other. Uh, and that's great. Believe in what you do, but uh, no, <laughs> everybody's different and every, everybody responds differently to different therapy models. And that's the beauty of having so many different models and so many different ways of doing therapy. So I went through the same program that Caleb did. We actually, we were in the first round of this program and we ended up with different trainers. I'm not going to run this trainer's name through the mud, but it was not a good experience. The, I just could not relate to the training style. I, along with others, often felt very confused and often felt like our questions weren't being answered. And it was uh, just kind of a chaotic experience. I was also pregnant at the time and they mentioned pregnancy and said that they don't recommend doing EMDR within the first trimester. And so whenever we went to practice and role play, I was like, well, y'all mentioned that and that's me. And they're like, all right, well, we want you to sit out. So I didn't even get to experience it as like in the role play part of the training. I just got to kind of observe other people experiencing it. I also think a part of my different view of it was I already was heavily invested in a different therapy model, which we will probably talk about in another episode, which is IFS therapy or internal and family systems, internal family systems therapy. And I use that as my main modality. And so as I was learning EMDR, I was very much struggling to see how this could integrate with my style of therapy and how IFS approaches treatment planning and working with clients. So I wasn't super keen to use it. And one thing I liked about the program was they were like, we want you to help these victims of sexual assault. We wanted there to be a standard of anyone in this program is trauma trained, which is why we put you through EMDR. But if you're trauma trained in something else, that's fine. So I felt comfortable with that, but I did end up with clients who felt stuck in the IFS process. And so I introduced this idea of EMDR and they were incredibly responsive to it. And I think that speaks highly of the model that I was not convincing them it worked. I was not selling the product. I was just like, do you want to try this? Sure. And they were just telling me how much it made an impact on their healing and their goals, them, them reaching their therapeutic goals. And there were people who were processing stuff that happened years ago 
that have been tormenting them and EMDR helped them to finally unshake that memory and get it to reprocess and to feel less triggering. And it was a pretty cool experience to be able to see it in the room as a clinician. And I already was invested in a therapist at the time and she did somatic experiencing, which is another model. So I really wasn't willing to pause therapy to get that experience as a client. Although I did try it uh, postpartum to process my labor, which was pretty traumatizing. And we talked about that in the red flags episode. It wasn't a great experience. Yeah. And that was only because this person was only basically trained in EMDR. And there's a lot of advanced trainings that um, really take it from practicing a protocol to being more um, of an, an art form of it and being able to really mold it to your clients. And so she just wasn't there yet. And that was fine. And I ended up going back to my somatic experiencing therapist. So I haven't really experienced it as a client, but I did have a, an amazing supervisor, which Caleb and I both had this supervisor as associates who is a, an EMDR certified consultant. And it was very nice to process my doubts with him, to have him as a resource to help me mold it into my style of therapy in a way that felt good. And for him to give me hope that that was possible because my trainer and the helpers or the assistants at the training were all purist. And they were just, I mean, they would literally say things like, well, if it's not working on a client, then you're doing something wrong versus maybe you need to bring in something else for it to work. And so it helped to unpack it more and more with someone who was open to it being integrative. And last year, Caleb and I did an IFS with EMDR training. And that was like, so great for me, where I was like, ah, it finally feels like the relational art form aspect of therapy that I need to practice well versus a protocol. And I feel a lot more confident utilizing it with my clients. I don't use it with all of them. And I tell my clients that that this is a very specific process. Not everyone needs it. IFS is trauma-informed as well. And um, if we bring it in and they don't like it, I'm happy to remove it. I'm never going to force anybody to love this therapy model if it doesn't feel good to their system. Yeah, I think you should never force a client to do a certain model. And I also agree with Lauren of this isn't the end-all be-all for therapy. Um EMDR can be extremely helpful, and I think it integrates really well with other models like IFS, which she talked about too, yeah. but it's it's not everything, um, and that's okay. Like, for some people, this will be really, really effective, and for other people, not so much. The important thing is that you're communicating with your therapist of this actually isn't working well for me, or this is super effective. So if you try it out and you go to see a therapist um, and it's not working, bring that into the room. Don't just sit there and say like, I guess it's me. Cause no, it's not right. you and it's not the therapist. It's sometimes just not the right model and that's okay. Uh, yeah. That might mean that your therapist can try a different model with you or that, uh, you can try shifting to a different therapist. Both of those are totally okay. 
Yes. Um, the other thing that I heard Lauren mention that I just want to think go over really quick um, are terms that you might hear related to clinicians. So you can find people who um, practice EMDR through the uh, IMDRIA, so EMDR International Association website. Um, most clinicians uh, are on that website and you can get on that website right after you're trained. So uh, that's the first level. After you've been trained, you can be a part of IMDRIA. Um, but after you've been trained, you can continue to meet with a uh, consultant so that you can become certified. So you learn more about advanced trainings and you learn more about different types of EMDR practice. Um, and so that first tier is EMDR trained, second tier is EMDR certified. And then after EMDR certification is uh, an EMDR consultant. So but not, those, but not everyone becomes that. Only people who want to teach it or, or have interest in helping people learn it. Exactly. So yeah, you, you don't have to go to like the absolute like highest, you have to have a consultant, but just knowing maybe that like, oh, they say that they're EMDR trained, that means that they've done the basic training versus certified means that they've maybe done a little bit more. Right. Um, just to give you some language that might be useful if, if you're looking for an EMDR therapist. That being said, like every job, it can feel a little political. I'm not fully on board with certifications being necessary. And the only reason I got certified was to become a consultant. So I've been practicing EMDR for years and have done advanced trainings, but stayed EMDR trained because I personally didn't feel any need to yeah. throw money at it in order to have a new word behind my name. And others very much love the idea of that can that is a way of putting some type of policy and procedure in place to see who is actually putting in the time and effort to really learn this model. Mm -hmm. And I, th I think it's very nuanced and, um, but I don't want, I, I don't like people being scared of certain labels like interns or associates. Like that could be an associate who's been working for years and has seen almost 3000 hours of clients <laughs> and you know, you could see someone who's fully licensed and so jaded and so burnt out that they're not a good therapist. Like all of these words, they, they, they do mean things and also they don't and take it with a grain of salt, but you can always ask your potential therapist, you know, I'm interested in EMDR. How do you practice it? And that might help you in deciding if they're a good fit because maybe the basic protocol really does speak to you. Maybe the way we described it, you're like, that's exactly what I need. Or maybe you're feeling like that feels too simple and I need something that can hold my complex situation. And that's where you might be interested in someone who's gotten some advanced trainings. Yeah, and to go off of that, uh, we did describe kind of the eight phase approach, which all of EMDR is an eight phase approach. Um, but there are specific protocols that kind of maybe move some of the phases um, around in relation to what might work best for the client. So like, yes. for example, an anxiety protocol as opposed to just this basic protocol or 
um, an addictions protocol or there's different protocols that might serve clients better. And that's one of the things that I think EMDR does super well. Um, the founder, Francine Shapiro, um, is uh, who's no longer alive, um, but whenever she was around, she wanted to make sure that this type of therapy was heavily researched because she knows that that's what people hear. And she knows that that's what leads to a therapy becoming better and stronger as time goes on. And so she always was encouraging people like run a study, figure out what works best, try to do some experimentation around this. And so EMDR is getting studied more and more. And that's one of the reasons why um, so many people are finally after decades of this therapy being around, people are finally starting to say like, oh, wow, this is a evidence-based practice um, that's not cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, right. It's something that's also effective. Um, yeah. So that's, I think, really useful is uh, how heavily researched this, this therapy is. Yeah. She also was very challenged, and there are a lot of people that think it's because she was a woman when she uh, invited this model. A lot of uh, people, higher-ups who can approve models, were saying, you're just trying to repackage hypnosis, and this isn't anything new, um, and that's that was not true. And so she did have to do a lot of research to prove its efficacy and, I guess, kind of its uniqueness from other models, which is kind of silly because there are models that men have come up with that sound almost exactly the same. But <laughs> that led to a heavily, heavily researched model. Um, that being said, there's bias within the research and researchers today are trying to address those biases. Like, are we expanding diversity? Have we, are we getting enough of the queer community involved in the research? Are we getting enough people of color, people of different cultures? Um, making sure that we're really addressing this idea of like, there's not one model that's fit for everyone, but if we're going to say it's highly researched and there's a, there's good evidence for it, then we want to make sure that we're doing best practice around that research. So I do really respect that about this model is that the, it's constantly being researched and getting better. And, and um, it seems like the researchers are very open to new findings as well. Like they're not just constantly trying to prove the same thing over and over again. Yeah, there's tons of techniques. Um, like one that's in vogue right now related to EMDR is called the flash technique, which we won't go into, but like it's very different um, yeah. than anything else that's ever been done in EMDR, but somebody tried it and it worked and now it's getting studied and it's getting a lot of efficacy behind it. So mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the way that um, she set up this therapy model, she really encouraged research. And she also like gave people a structure that was like, here's how to research your model and how to research it well. So if you want to do this, you have to make sure you're following these guidelines to be doing good research and to structure a study well. And that's just wonderful because she... Um, she not only had a good seed of an idea, but she made sure that 
the soil for the future of this model was really fertile and just nurtured all the ground around her work. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that that was just brilliant as a person who created a model because yeah, now this is gonna grow beyond her life, um, which is so cool. Right, yeah. And there are also very heavy criticisms against EMDR. Like I know, I don't know if this is still true, but I remember hearing a few years ago that if you're a practitioner in California, you will be so judged for doing EMDR. Like for some reason, California therapists are not on board with EMDR. Um, but there's criticism of like, is it actually the eye movements or is it just immersive therapy where you're immersing back into the memory and is it actually doing anything or is it that the therapist is pushing it? And so there are these criticisms that I think are important and could be applied to any model. And so again, it's just really thinking about like, does this feel like something that would work for you? And are you finding a therapist who's okay with it not working for you and will pivot and doesn't only have this tool in their toolbox, which if they do, that's fine. But listen to our red flags episode on how to terminate and find a therapist that is a better fit for you. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about what an actual session looks like for us. We can kind of speak into uh, how you would get a completely different experience from EMDR therapists. Yeah, so um, the first thing I do follow the phases um, and I follow them in a standard way. Like I give people the standard protocol unless whenever we're doing the work or whenever we're doing work together, they're talking about, oh, I, I'm having a phobia of X, Y, or Z. And so then I might switch into the phobia protocol or some other, but most often I start with the standard protocol. Um, and so what that's going to look like is pretty much just general history taking up front. So just kind of hearing how they uh, are doing and what's going on in their life um, and kind of which things might be traumatic for them. And then I start to go into that preparation phase by getting them resources um, that they can practice. And I make sure that not only are they practicing them outside of the therapy room, but are they being effective for them outside of the therapy room? Um, and so once we've done that, which sometimes can take a couple sessions, then and only then do I start doing what most people view as EMDR. So that's gonna be where you take them through um, a very structured target setup. Um, I'm a little bit more structured, I guess, than most, cause some people it's not as structured, but I follow the structure um, on my end because that's what I've seen works in the research. So that's what I wanna to give to my clients is what I've seen to be effective. So that's why I do this as structured as I do. Mm -hmm. um, and so asking specific questions around like, what was that like? What emotions were coming up for you? What sensations did you have? Those positive and negative thoughts. Um, and then taking them through the full process all the way to closure and reassessment. Um, which might be over the course of some people say like as as many as eight sessions um, or as few as eight sessions, but um, I tend to work with attachment traumas or complex traumas. And so that sometimes isn't uh, the case where it it's over after a short number of sessions. Um, sometimes more stuff shows up. 
which is okay. Um, and I just want to normalize that. What about for you, Lauren? What does it look like in your therapy room? I will add before I go into mine that you and I also both do a lot of identity trauma, which is very different. Like when you feel like something hit your identity, that's a lot deeper rooted than like a one-time event, like a car accident. So LGBT community who have been feel have felt oppressed in their faith. We work a lot with that. Um, I work a lot with people of color who have felt oppressed in certain systems. And so um, things like that can be a lot more complex and take a lot longer to unpack than like a one-time event. Yeah, exactly. And sometimes, I, I don't know, I don't know who the EMDR clinician that exists out there that like has these one-time events. Cause a lot of times right? things show up that it's like, oh, it was a car accident, but I've actually been in multiple car accidents and actually what comes up for me around it is feeling unsafe. And when I feel unsafe, it reminds me of my childhood right? and this, that, or the other. And it's like, oh, this isn't about a car accident anymore. This is about safety, right? Um, which is <laughs> not something that you can expect to be completely fine with after just a few sessions of therapy. I do yeah. think you'll have a lot of emotional relief, but to say that it's completely fine, um, I think would be um, not genuine. Yeah, for sure. I will say I've had maybe a handful of times where someone wanted to work on something very specific and did not want the full we're going into your whole history and so I was like okay I'm okay with that I still want some history in case things come up but there are some protocols that can keep you on that exact thing that you want to work on rather than letting your brain wander as much as it can and I guess an example of that for me would be I really like working with uh, moms which is another identity piece, becoming a mom or losing a baby during pregnancy or having a traumatic labor or even a traumatic uh, pregnancy. And so there have been times where I work with people who are like, all right, I've got my labor coming up, but this traumatic thing happened and I can tell I'm afraid of um, what could go wrong. And so we focused only on that thing that has happened around baby versus going into mom's history and knowing that there's kind of this uh, deadline of when they need to feel okay and feel confident to go into a, a specific event. And so there have been times where I've worked on one event for someone, but I do always recommend uh, considering a more complex treatment plan after. And, um, and there've been other cases as well, but uh, I'm using that as a general specialization that I do versus talking about clients. And uh, there have been times where the person is like, nope, that's everything I needed. Thank you so much. And we end therapy. And there have been other times where they're like, loved the relief I felt from that. And I would also like to feel that relief around X, Y, and Z in my life. And then we get more into the uh, complex treatment plan. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so therapy for me, since mine is more 
IFS based is you're going to spend a lot more time in phase one with me or phase two, which one's resourcing again? <laughs> uh, preparation is usually whenever I do resourcing. So phase two. Phase two. You're going to spend a lot more time in phase two with me. And uh, I very much, even before I was trained in like exactly how to use EMDR with IFS, I very much viewed IFS as a way of resourcing. So I do still make sure I cover these different, um, what would you call them? Like different categories of resourcing, like containment, grounding, deep breath. I do make sure I kind of cover those and tick those off as the client is practicing them. But for me, resourcing is a lot of building self-energy, building internal wisdom, internal trust, and uh, even like internal strength. And we start with the symptoms of your trauma. And so how do you now protect yourself today because that happened to you. And we spend a lot of time exploring those protectors. And so I have clients coming in saying, you know, I want to work on this trauma. And my history taking is a lot of like, okay, and how are you experiencing that today? So, you know, I shut down during conflict. I don't get close to people. Um, I break down very easily crying, like all of these symptoms. And we're going to spend a lot of time there unpacking that. And then my process, unless someone specifically asks for EMDR, um, my process is to let EMDR come in when it naturally feels like it's coming into the session. So we might do eye movements around protectors. Um, or we might only do eye movements around when the trauma memories start coming up. And so the IFS protocol, it's less of the systems um, or these steps in place, but there is this idea of kind of the trajectory of a client. And the idea is as you work with protectors, you eventually get to a point where protectors are going to start showing you what they are protecting, which typically is the trauma memory. And that's when we might bring EMDR into the therapy session. And so I also don't go in order of memory. So basic protocol is you start with the first memory and work your way up, or you start with the worst memory and then go back to first memory and work your way up. Yeah, and that's what I've heard as worst first and then. Uh, yeah, and then later. kind of, right, right. And I don't do that. I trust the client's parts um, and your system to bring up what needs to be processed and when. And um, a lot of times we do naturally get to younger memories, but there are times where it feels safer to process a young adult memory before we even start touching on childhood. And I'm kind of more guiding the clients of like, all right, what is your system needing? And let's do some work around that. And then go from there. But I do have that history taking at the beginning so that I can have touch points. Um, if they're saying, you know, oh, that, you know, concept of what I was working on feels great. I might say, okay, but I'm also, I also remember you saying like you had these memories around a certain family member that we haven't touched on. Um, and then we might do some some scanning around that to see, did that naturally heal on its own because we healed other root memories or um, is there a protector there that's like, no, 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 we're not going there. And then we're gonna do work around that. <laughs>
what I want to, I guess, get across with EMDR is with it being so structured, the structure comes from the research and the research is what's seen to be most effective. So that's why some of this structure might be in place, but the people that we see aren't statistics, they're people. Yeah. So if you see that going to the worst memory first for your client isn't going to be what's most beneficial. That's the beauty of therapy is like, we can kind of tweak it, but Mm -hmm. what's seen research wise is that going to the worst memory first is what's best Mm -hmm. uh, for the most amount of people, Mm -hmm. Um, not for everyone, but for the most amount of people. And so that's why the structure exists. And that's why um, this therapy works as well as it does. So, um, just knowing that whenever you, uh, both as a therapist and as a client, like knowing that, oh, there's maybe reasons why they're doing it the way that they're doing it. Yeah. And if you're a therapist, make sure you walk before you can run, like don't go off base with only a basic training. Like if you need to you make sure that you're getting consulting and or advanced trainings, if you're trying something different, because I was not going off the beaten path until I was consulting with my supervisor and then getting those advanced trainings to help me fine tune uh, what I had been working on d- through consulting. And so, yeah, it, it's it's like learning anything. You're not an expert right away. So you want to make sure you really get, you you learn two plus two before you learn calculus, you know, like you want to get the basics down, but as a client, you may experience so many different versions of EMDR and it's not wrong unless it feels like it's re-traumatizing you or unless you're leaving the room feeling completely dysregulated, then it's wrong then that client's not doing good work or that therapist is not doing good work. Yeah. Good point. Cause yeah. And I don't, I want to um, say too, though, you're a good therapist, exactly like Lauren just said, they should re-regulate you before like therapy ends. Of course, there are going to be times whenever you've just experienced like a huge amount of trauma, but that's why resourcing comes first is because like, they're going to try their best to regulate you before a session comes to a close, but you should also have resources that you should be able to use and feel comfortable using if mm-hmm. things are not going well. Cause at the end of the day, you're still processing through a trauma, which is a lot of work and sometimes is going to be uncomfortable, but you should have a therapist that understands that and has prepared you well for dealing with this. Like you should have armor for um, sure. Whenever you're walking out of that room. Yes. It should feel like the end of a tough workout, not like someone made you pull a muscle because they were pushing you too hard. Yeah. <laughs> Good yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. And I will say even us talking about the different approaches we have, it leads to us attracting different types of clients and, Um, for me, I do attract clients with really, really strong protectors. Um, They can easily dysregulate, they can easily um, shut down, get defensive, be very reactive, things like that. And so going straight to the trauma wouldn't, would very likely re-traumatize them. 
And so they are drawn to my approach because we're going to start at those symptoms and spend a lot of time there before we even tap into a trauma memory. And that feels really safe to them. Other people are like, that feels like such a waste of time. <laughs> like, I want to get to the heart of it. Like, I want to start feeling relief by addressing the trauma versus relief by addressing the symptoms. And so it just really varies on your needs and how you respond to the hundreds of different protocols there are out there at this point for EMDR. Yeah. Any common misconceptions that we might have missed? I know we've said a few as we've gone through. Yeah, I can't even remember the few we said. I remember one of the ones that sticks out to me is um, that this therapy, you'll be done in eight sessions. Yeah. Um, sometimes that can be true um, if it's a one-off trauma. Um, it like this is a therapy that's seen to be effective after very few sessions, which is why insurances have started to get on board with EMDR. Um, but uh, I would say that the, that's potentially a common misconception if you're dealing with any sort of attachment trauma or complex trauma. And even a one time, even if I'm thinking of the people who came to me for a very specific goal, it wasn't eight sessions because we also then moved into present triggers and future templating and that takes some time. Future templating is how do you want to handle this if when if and when it comes up? And that yeah. takes some time to to kind of build that new resilience and that new internal strength. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and what is the is this still relevant recent of I remember being told it can be as little as, uh, or you can experience relief in as little as three sessions. Yeah. Well, and I think the reason why they have statements like that is um, because EMDR uses so much scaling um, where you say like, how disturbing is this to you on a scale from zero to 10, where zero is neutral and 10 is the highest you can imagine. You can call relief in as few as three sessions whenever you have somebody that says like, oh, I'm at a 10. And then they walk away from session three being like, it's only a four today. Yeah. Like that's moving six spaces. Like that's huge relief. And that's amazing to hear. Mm -hmm. But um, I don't know, like some people want it to be at that zero or that one. Um, and that might take a while, but mm -hmm. that is still relief to know that you've gone from a 10 to a, to a four or whatever. Right. Yeah. I know in the basic protocol, they're like these, um, analogies use, like, it's like riding on a train and seeing the landscape go by versus being in the forest, or it's like watching a movie rather than being in the scene. Um, but one that I've, naturally adapted and I can't remember if I heard it from someone or not whenever people were wanting relief or were frustrated that they were not a zero they're like it's kind of like a window broke in your house and we've picked up the big shards but there's that little glass dust that you have to pick up and sometimes it takes a few vacuums and sometimes you think you got it all and then you see a little pile somewhere 
And like that takes some time and that's okay. But you will feel relief in a sense of when we start picking out the big shards, that's going to feel amazing and feel really good. Yeah. Yeah. That, I really like that uh, analogy. My, my personal favorite analogy for EMDR is um, it's a DVD player. Um, and what they say is it's like, if you've ever put in a DVD, um, which is sadly becoming less and less as it <laughs> moves forward, um, right. you put in a DVD and it plays that menu usually of like play the movie. And so you're sitting there and you're just watching the menu and usually it's got like a two minute cycle where it's like playing little clips from the movie or uh, it's got the like soundtrack going on in the background, but it's just playing the same thing, looping it over and over and over again. And so EMDR for me, um, I actually had one of my former therapists uh, explain it this way. Uh, EMDR for me is you have that trauma memory looping over and over, just like that DVD menu. And the goal of EMDR therapy isn't to take the DVD out and get rid of it and throw it away so that you're never, like you don't even remember it anymore. No, the goal is to take it out of the DVD player and be able to put it on the shelf. And if you ever want to go back and look at that memory, you can, but now you have the option. It's not stuck in the DVD player and just replaying even when you don't want it to. Now you have an option to say like, you know what? No, that needs to go on the shelf for today and I'll come back to it whenever I want to. And that's what like the relief that you might feel with EMDR is being able to take those memories that are popping up um, through PTSD and put those traumatic memories kind of on the shelf. Um, they're still, mm -hmm. they still exist, but you get to choose when they come into your mind. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It can be a really effective way of addressing your goals for your own mental health, especially if you feel that there's any complexity to your story. CBT is lovely. There are lots of therapists who do it very well, but sometimes CBT can feel a little bit too simple for people's needs, or there are people who've been through CBT therapy even multiple times and they're just like at a stuck point. And that's when you might look into other trauma-informed therapies like EMDR, IFS, somatic experiencing, interpersonal biology. We're going to talk about all of these, we hope, throughout the podcast because um, we, we both really love the diversity of therapy and just all of the different ways people can help you work on your mental health. Yeah. Well, thank you for listening to uh, this week's episode of Thoughts on Therapy. Um, once again, if you'd love to uh, message us, we'd, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, so please feel free to send us uh, messages at askthoughtsontherapy at gmail.com. Um, and we'll see you next month. Goodbye. Bye.